In the consult, we discuss cases that are violent and sexually violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Consult. I'm Julia Cowley, retired FBI agent and profiler and former special agent forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. Angela Searser, retired FBI agent and profiler. Susan Kostler-Drew, retired FBI agent and profiler. And Bob Drew, retired FBI agent and profiler. This episode is part three and the final episode of Profiling Israel Keys. I'm sorry for the delay in getting this episode out, but there were some unforeseen circumstances that prevented us from working on the podcast. If you have not listened to parts one and two, please go back and do so. As we discussed in part one, married couple Bill and Lorraine Courier went missing from their home in Essex, Vermont in June 2011. In March 2012, after 18-year-old Samantha Koenig was kidnapped from the drive through coffee stand she worked at in Anchorage, Alaska, we learned that Israel Keyes was responsible for all their murders. He also sexually assaulted Lorraine and Samantha. I believe Israel Keyes was above average intelligence, but not as smart as he believed himself to be. They never are. He admitted to burying what he called a kill cache in the area of the courier's home, and this kill cache was a Home Depot bucket that contained his abduction-slash-rape kit. In Samantha's case, as we mentioned, he formulated a plan to get money by writing a fake ransom note to her family. Samantha's father deposited the money into her account, and Keyes used her debit card to take the money out. It was this supposed great plan that was ultimately his undoing. Authorities tracked the debit card usage in Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas, which is where authorities apprehended Keys. In one of the ATM surveillance photos, investigators identified the make and model of a rental car seen in the photo, and a trooper pulled Keys over. In the car, they found Samantha's cell phone, her ID, and a gun. Keyes believed he was smarter than everyone, including law enforcement, and that was just not the case. They did a great job, and they were able to apprehend a highly mobile, somewhat intelligent, and well-thought-out serial killer. I, I think this is a good point to make with this case, just because if you were to look at these two cases Individually, they're obviously very different. Even in this one case, there's some very unusual things, which is why the BAU was contacted. I guess the point I want to make in both of these, behavioral analysis is just one aspect of a very good and thorough investigation. It is not the be-all, end-all, as we've said right from the very beginning. And although we were involved throughout this to provide some advice with regards to behavior. 
at the same time, another thing that the unit did in advising the police was just to make sure that every bit of any kind of technology that could be used was being used. I guess in a way to describe it would be investigative support. Clearly, the local and state investigators that were involved with this were the lead investigators. But what was going on at the same time as the behavioral analysis was also very good investigative techniques and stuff that was happening in real time, every time new evidence came in that it was being acted on and every type of investigative technique that could be used was being used. And that's what ultimately led to his arrest was him finally making a mistake, which everyone does at some point. And the vehicle that he was operating at the time being discovered and then that leading to being pulled over in Texas. I think it's important to know that investigations like this, uh, abductions, whether they are of adults or children, have many, many arms and many, many leads that are all being covered simultaneously, many different techniques, some that we obviously wouldn't want to be, we wouldn't want to disclose in detail in this type of a forum are all being used as much as possible in real time. And the BAUs were one aspect of what sometimes can be a huge operation involving hundreds of individuals, and then all that information being funneling back to the lead investigators with the agency that has the lead in the case to hopefully come to a successful conclusion. So while hopefully we can provide information either with regards to behavioral analysis or suggesting techniques that maybe that agency, just because they haven't had a case like that before, haven't thought of before, It really is a combination of all these things that eventually solve the case. And then a lot of what we may learn comes after the apprehension and a further detailed examination of who this individual was, where they've been, what other crimes they might have committed, and what brought them to the point to when they were finally apprehended. In the case of Israel Keys. One of the things that is not uncommon with people with this type of personality is that they really enjoy being able to manipulate and deceive other people. There was a term coined by a psychologist who studied nonverbal behavior by the name of Dr. Ekman, and he termed it the phrase of duping delight, where when telling a lie and when manipulating and deceiving someone else, this is a very pleasurable experience for them. Certainly someone like Israel Keys, that would be a a very positive experience to deceive other people. On the other hand, while he may have been intelligent, even above average intelligence, his ego was such, and that's reflected throughout this case, but his ego was such that it it was inflated. So he might have been smart, but he wasn't as smart as he thought himself to be. And he might have been smart, but he underestimated the intelligence of other people. Ultimately, this creates a vulnerability in someone who would have very few vulnerabilities. It's like if you see a boxing match and someone is a champion and assumes that there is nobody that can beat them, and there is an upset, a surprise match where they lose to someone who might have been ranked far below them or thought to be less skilled than them, but they underestimated their opponent while at the same time overestimating their own abilities. 
And that is what you see with the inflated ego of someone like an Israel Keys, where he began meticulously planning as his ego was fulfilled and he was being rewarded for that planning. His sense of self became inflated. What couldn't he do? Then possibilities are endless because he does not feel the vulnerability that he initially planned against as acutely. He doesn't feel the risk of being apprehended as acutely as he did when he initially started planning. That's when mistakes are made. That individual feels less of a compelling need to be meticulous and to be planned for contingencies. You may even think I was worrying needlessly. I could have done this much easier with less planning and I would have still gotten away with it. And that's oftentimes how people like this are caught. And I think that's a great point, this idea of duping delight someone getting a thrill out of deceiving others. I think that you're exactly right. And in fact, during his interview with detectives and FBI agents, he mentions that. He says, that's where I get my kicks, was being able to live two different lives and have no one have a clue. He loved having this secret in deceiving others. And that was the thrill. And he went through his life like that. If you think of psychopathy being on the far continuum of narcissism, and you see both the inflated ego and the desire to feel superior, masking an insecure and weak individual. And ultimately, that's what we have. It's conceit as opposed to confidence. I think it's an intoxicating circumstance when he can feel superior to other human beings. I think that's very intoxicating. Hence his desire for control and his delight in deceiving people. The feeling or the incorrect conclusion is I'm operating on a superior level than other people. They are outmatched with me. They can never compete with me. They're certainly not going to be able to catch me. I am a mastermind. The fact that he was intelligent only in his mind was evidence that he was correct in that assumption. So after being caught in Texas, he was extradited back up to Alaska, where he gave several interviews to detectives. And we learned a lot. He did confess to sexually assaulting and murdering Samantha Koenig the very night that he had abducted her upon his return from his trip with his family he dismembered her and put her in a lake. It was a frozen lake. He cut a hole in the ice and put her body in the lake up there in Alaska. Members of the FBI dive team were able to go and recover her after his admissions. And as I mentioned earlier, during those talks, he admitted to other crimes over many years offered details, and we were able to conclusively link him to the couriers. There's another case that I think investigators are confident he's responsible for, but they don't have forensic evidence, and um, that is the disappearance of a woman named Deborah Feldman in New Jersey. They're pretty confident there's enough details that he's responsible for that, um, and she was 49 years old. She went missing in 2009, but again, no forensic evidence. So he talked a lot. 
he talked a lot to investigators and one of the things that I've often heard people say and other experts say is that these guys, meaning serial killers like him, love to talk. And he's certainly a good example of that. But we've seen other cases, cases that we've worked on, cases we've covered in this show, where they don't want to talk. But in this case, he did. He, he sat down willingly with investigators and talked quite a bit. And he'd asked for a coffee, he wanted Americano, which was exactly what he had apparently ordered that night at the kiosk. And he wanted a Snickers candy bar and a cigar. So he had his demands. He wanted some favorable treatment while he was talking with investigators. But he said a lot of things. And ultimately, he claimed responsibility for approximately 11 murders, several murders. I don't know exactly, but I know he ended up killing himself. After talking with investigators at length, before going to trial, he killed himself at the end of the year, December 1st, 2012. He was in the correctional facility where he was being held and he slit his wrist with a disposable razor. And in his cell, they found what was sort of a suicide note, but I'll let Angela talk a little bit more about that. And 11 pieces of paper where skulls had been sort of painted on with Keyes' blood. And investigators believe that those skulls represent the total amount of his victims, 11 victims. And they truly believe there are other victims out there. They just haven't identified them. And Angela, you want to talk a little bit about the suicide note and your impressions of that? Because I know you have some. So it's interesting. It's indicated that a suicide note was found. But when you actually read it, it's more of a statement. It's not really even related to waiting for his trial. It's not related to why he's killing himself or anything like that. Again, this is just an interpretation of some of the things that I read on there. Obviously, nobody knows exactly what he meant except for him. And he is no longer with us, so we can't ask him what he meant. But it is a very interesting statement. It's in a poetic format, so he's written it as if it's a poem. And one of the things I find very interesting is that he starts off talking mostly about maybe his ideological views and how they translate into his lack of respect or even disdain for consumerism and Americans focusing on material things or superficial things. I'd say at least more than half of it is related to that. And that's the beginning of it. Even the very first line, which reads, where will you go, you clever little worm, if you bleed your host dry? Now, we don't know what that means, but when you keep reading and he's talking about the issues with consumerism, people not appreciating what they have, having big cars, things like that, it makes you believe he's talking about the earth and, you know, depleting the resources. Talking about somebody who's so passionate about what he was doing and the killings he was involved in or performed and 
the beginning of his letter that he leaves behind is about ideology. It's fascinating to me. He goes on. Here's another interesting line. I said part of it before. Get in your big car so you can go. You can get to work fast on roads made of dinosaur bones. Punch in on the clock and sit on your ass playing stupid ass games on your phone. Paper on your wall says you got smarts. The test that you took told you so, but you would still crawl like the vermin you are once your precious power grid's blown. So that sounds like a typical thing that extremists might say when they're talking about people being too commercialized and depleting resources and consumerism. And we know that he grew up in Utah and also in Washington state. So it's not uncommon to have people with, I'm not saying extremism, but with beliefs that are there to protect the earth. And interestingly, where he chooses to ultimately end up is Alaska, the last frontier off the grid, so to speak. What you point out is like what he's writing is there's, you're right. There's a lot of disdain. He's looking down on people. Here he is, is committing murder, but that's not bad. It's everyone else. Right. And as Bob was saying, talking about superior level, he's talking about people with their educations, their, I assume, diplomas up on the wall, but he's basically smarter than everyone else when it comes down to it. At the point that he dies, he has been identified as one of the most condemned types of individuals on earth. He is a sexually motivated serial killer. And he is writing not about that. He is basically aligning these base, disgusting acts, cruel acts, with this vaunted ideology as if to emphasize how superior he is and the fact that you'll never understand the way his mind works because it is just unknowable at your level. He probably knows these letters would be made public, that the public will never understand a mind that is just so, so well-developed like his. Meanwhile, it's being written by someone who trolls around and kills innocent people for sexual pleasure. If he could pull off that manipulation and have have people believe that he was somehow special, that would really be a trick. But after you finish reading his and, and maybe even finding yourself nodding at some of the things he's saying about consumerism, and then you back up and go, wait a minute, this is written by some depraved psychopath. This is nobody I, I align with at all. And that's the only thing he'd agree with. You don't align with him because he's he's a superior being to you. It is interesting also when you talk about the fact that he's talking about victimization other than his victims and how it's wrong. He talks about the way I'm reading it. Send the dying to wait for their death in the comfort of retirement homes. Quietly, quickly say it's for the best. It's best for you so their fate you'll not know turn a blind eye back to the screen and soak in your reality shows stand in front of your mirror as you 
Andrew Preen in a plastic castle you call home. To me, that reads, you know, feeling that it talks about the victimization of people that just put their family members into retirement homes and leave them for dead, basically. It's, it's more chastising of this is what it's, he's preaching. This is what's wrong with society. And people are not sacred beings. People are disgusting. They are deceitful. They are awful. And so if you kill a couple of them, well, that's because I'm just so disgusted with all of you. And none of you are worth anything. So if, if that's what I do, then that's what I do. And for reasons that you'll never understand. Such a dichotomy between what he writes and what he actually does. If you think back to the couriers, two very vulnerable people with medical issues, just the type that might wind up in a nursing home that he's railing against in his little composition. And yet these are exactly the folks that he picked out to victimize several years earlier. Or for that matter, Samantha Koenig, who is just beginning her life and is by all accounts, she's a giving, kind person just beginning her life. She's not a risky liver. She's not, she's not someone who is involved with all sorts of illicit acts. She is working. She is responsible. She is loved. All things that are foreign to someone like Israel Keys. He had his own family. He may, there's a, a, a phrase that was coined by a psychiatrist. Actually, it was the title of his, of his book. Dr. Cleckley in 1941 wrote The Mask of Sanity. And he was speaking about, about the psychopathic person. And he was saying that what they do is they are basically mimicking what they observe to be normal, it is just a disguise. Horrifyingly enough, even having a significant other and having children, these are all acts that you would assume involve a great deal of emotion and loving and caring. And in fact, it's just, it's an act on, on his part to cover up what he really is, which is this sexually depraved predator that is looking to just to hurt people for his own pleasure. I think he believes these things ab about himself as well. I think he really truly feels superior and better than others. We don't always see that in these cases. We see some very insecure serial sexual murderers. But in this case, I think he does truly believe these things and he does have a lot of disdain for everyone else around him and the rules don't apply to him and he's going to do whatever he wants because the rest of us are just scum. You know, people ask, is it, is it nurture or nature and, or some combination thereof? And we, what we don't know from him is what his personal development was like. We know he went into the service. We know that, that he was seemingly sociable. We know that he was talking about several murders. But what we don't know, and we know, we also know that he's a liar. So what we don't know is any of the content of what he says. 
And even if he talked about his childhood, we couldn't be we couldn't rely on that because he's a liar. First and foremost, he's a liar to himself and to everyone else. There are some things that can be verified, but anyone's internal thoughts and feelings are a mystery unless they honestly disclose them. We can make assumptions based on their actions, but we can't know them. Although, as the the adage goes, oh, these guys, as if there's a club, but these guys love to talk. They might like to talk, but the motivation to talk is not to reveal facts or to create a bridge of understanding. Their primary motivation is to decide what it is that is accepted as fact so that they can maintain that mask of sanity and they can maintain the secrets that are most valuable to them. So now he's dead and we'll never know the truth, the whole truth about Israel Keys or whether anything that he said, except that which can be irrefutably proven external to anything he said, We'll never know the rest of it. And we'll never know how much is a lie, how much is a truth, and how much is just his opinion on things that have actually occurred. Absolutely. We won't know that. But it is fun to try to figure it out. This letter, which, you know, I don't, I wouldn't even call it a su suicide note. Who knows if it was even meant to be a suicide note or just some scribing that he did. But just to finish... Another interesting part to me is that the last line regarding what we we're talking about before is the land, land of the free, land of the lie, land of the scheme, Americanize. And then he switches right from that. The next line, he starts going into what is seemingly about the murders he committed or the victims that he had. Although, again, we don't know if that's exactly what it is. So one of the lines here is i looked in your eyes they were so dark warm and trusting as though you had not a worry or care the more guileless the game the better potential to fill up those pools with your fear basically it's you're vulnerable you're trusting you're a good victim for me and soon you'll be filled with fear it's the best kind of victim for him because he loves to fool people and to see that change in them when they realize who he really is, is probably something that is very meaningful to him when he's committing his crimes, but perfect victim. But I think you're right, Angela. I think that sums it all up right there. And as we keep talking about, as Bob mentioned, he loves the lie. He loves fooling people, seeing that trust in their eyes, but he knows who he really is and what he's really going to do. And in that, he feels in control, which is another part of this, is that, that control of fooling people, of instilling fear in his victims. And he mentioned this in his, in his statements, was that a lot of these aspects we were talking about, the organization, the planning, in his writings, in any of this whether he's fooling someone, whether he's leading them on and hoping that the, that Samantha is still alive, or he's 
con somebody in, into a vulnerable position and then he knows later that he's going to commit great violence and kill them and to watch that recognition in his victim's face go from some kind of a hope that maybe I can get out of this to life to realizing that they're going to be killed. All of that is immensely gratifying, but it's also kind of an ultimate control of, of not only his immediate victim, but then of any of the people that are associated with his victim. If he thinks he's fooling the police and he's controlling that too, he's controlling the investigation. There's an, an immense amount of gratification that I think comes just from that. And in that same line, Angela's said, you know, there's not really a suicide note. It's some kind of a riot diatribe. Oftentimes we think of suicide of someone who is so desperate, who has lost so much hope, who oftentimes is suffering from such a severe depression that they just can't really see their way out of that. And that this is really the only way to alleviate the pain that they're suffering. This is not where Israel Keys was. I believe this is not someone who was desperate. This is someone who was continuing to maintain control of his destiny. He wasn't going to have to go through a trial. If it was going to end, he knew at this point he was going to be jailed for the rest of his life, that he would no longer be able to travel. He would no longer be able to enjoy the things that meant the most to him. And so it was like, I'm going to end this now and I'm going to end it under my own terms. He wanted to make sure that this was interpreted, not as someone, and oftentimes people, the despondent who end up taking their own lives, feel that they're, they're no longer worthy of life or they're, they're failing at, in the world and have no hope. Rather, what he does, first he states this very condescending ideology where he's chastising humanity for its, its faults. But ultimately what he's doing is he hasn't failed. The world has failed him. He is, he is dismissing himself from any more of this BS that is life on this earth. He doesn't want to be associated with, with people because people are, as he puts, they're scum or vermin, and he doesn't want to be associated with them. The interesting part when he mentions the, to me, the innocence or maybe even gullibility of victims in this, I look into your eyes and see trust. Someone who's trusting and gullible and innocent, in his view, at least his stated view, is stupid. You could look at the vulnerable because they're innocent and gullible because they're innocent as virtuous and in a sense superior to perhaps the more cynical of us. But he doesn't, he doesn't want to. In fact, I would bet there is a certain amount of resentment for someone who has maintained the ability to trust other humans and to be gullible because they don't think in evil terms and to have maintained a, a modicum of innocence into adulthood, I would bet that he resents that because he did not, he was not able to maintain that if he ever remembered having it. And he sees his reality as the reality. And these people are just stupid and deceived. And so the fact that he victimizes them, well, that's in his view, well, what do you expect if you walk around so vulnerable like this? 
you you know you as a as a population do terrible things to the earth and and each other and you live this ridiculous life on top of that you're not even aware of it and you end up being vulnerable to someone like me because you're stupid when in fact who he's victimizing are people who are good people and good people don't think along the terms that someone like Israel Keyes thinks. He's more or less an expert in being an evil person. And everyone else is in that particular subject less informed than he is. As he goes on, because there are several excerpts here, comparing his, and again, I'm assuming his victims, to butterflies. My pretty captive butterfly, colorful wings, my hand smears. I somehow repaint them with punishment and tears. Violent metamorphosis, emerge my dark moth princess. I would come often and worship on the altar of your flesh. You shudder with revulsion and try to shrink far from me. I'll have you tied down and begging to become my Stockholm sweetie. So as you could see, he wants to take them from being their beautiful, innocent selves and smear them with fear to fulfill his fantasy. I think also that that just speaks to his sadistic tendencies. And the anger that they're based on. Yeah. He's angry at the world. He can act cool. That imagery and those words betray this confident air that he tries to put on and tell you that he is a frustrated, angry, weak individual, does not even see his has lost the connection enough to even understand that he's weak. He feels that he has discovered the truth. Maybe at some point he wasn't as far down the, the road as he ended up, that he was less informed, that now he is more informed. But I don't think he sees it. I don't think he's aware of it. I think he's lost awareness of that. I think he feels like he is superior and that he's embraced this fantasy but in fact, his sadism, it is anger. It is anger because he, he cannot live in connection and conjunction with the world. In this instance, this particular instance too, I think he may be taken a little, talked about him possibly being above average intelligence. Maybe he was well-read. This is, he's taking a little artistic license here. This sounds a little a la Silence of the Lambs with the moth reference, et cetera. Again, in reading this here, he is in his, possibly maybe this is his last statement to the world or whatever, and he's writing in some type of a poetic fashion, and and yet he's a serial killer. It's these two things that are just so diametrically opposed that he fashions himself some type of a, of a great writer, completely removing himself from the fact of, of who he at the core really is to speak in any kind of a quasi flowery language and try to describe what it is that he's done in an eloquent way. Again, possibly borrowing from silence of the lambs that he's still at his core, yeah. someone who's a sadistic, sexually motivated serial killer. Well, he's extremely grandiose but would expect that because he yes. has this inflated sense, this fantasy of unlimited power and intellect and whatever. And he, so he wants that to be 
part of his legacy is, wow, he was just, uh, I mean, an, an evil genius. And the, the thing is, people are writing articles. If you Googled his name, you will find that there are articles written about how he stumped law enforcement, etc., because he was just so, so smart. I'm sure if he had the ability to read those, that would be exactly what he would want to laminate and tack on his wall. That is what he was intending, is for people to think of him in those terms. Probably thought when he wrote that, that his legacy would go on and on and on as if it was going to be some published material that was going to be referenced for years and years to come. But he's leaving us, or he's trying to leave this impression and may have left it on some that he was way beyond all of us and we could never understand him. And he leaves this note and what he's probably thinking when he leaves these notes and these drawings Again, what does he want to do? He wants to dupe us. He wants to make us think and question and like, who is this Israel Keys? Which is what we're doing. We've learned a lot from him, but he's really not as mythical or legendary as he wanted us all to believe. Exactly. Grandiose is a great term. Grandiose. In particular with the, the skulls done in his blood i mean it it's it's really over the top dramatic last effort to draw attention he's emphasizing himself as someone with who exercised the power over life and death he probably wouldn't want to be talked about as a pervert because that's a that's a demeaning term but People who engage in deviant sexual practices at times are called that. And he certainly is someone who engaged in extremely deviant sexual practices. He talks about the death aspect. He doesn't talk about the fact that he is one, he was one strange dude with or without murder. That was one screwed up guy sexually. That is not the type of legacy he wanted. He wanted it to be more about, you know, on a philosophical plane on, or a, a, just an esoteric, unknowable plane. Certainly not, well, I found it sexually stimulating to hurt people. I'm a grubby little pervert. That's not what he wanted anyone to think of him as. But that's what he was. Bottom line. And yet we have books and media that portray him again as this sort of evil genius of some sort and he's not at all i think in in closing especially given what bob was just talking about in that what is real keys i think how he would like to be remembered as opposed to what he truly was is instead rather than the focus being so often on those who perpetrate the crimes is to remember the victims to remember the individuals that were lost to family and to friends, whether they be a middle-aged couple that weren't hurting anyone, who were just living their quiet lives, or a young woman full of life and looking forward to everything that life could offer that were suddenly and violently taken from this world 
we so often focus on the predators when I wish in particularly in the media that we focused much more heavily on the victims and who they were and the loss to society of a whole because of their deaths. Thank you. Thank you all, my dearest friends and colleagues, Angela, Susan, and Bob. That's it for this episode of The Consult. Thank you for listening. This episode of The Consult was written and produced by me, Julia Cowley. The show was edited and mixed by Mike Aris, and the music was composed by John Hansky. If you'd like to learn more, please visit The Consult website at www.truecrimeconsult.com. That's www.truecrimeconsult.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the consult pod. Thank you for listening.